Welcome to the ADHD Open Space Podcast. My name is Gray Miller, and I will be your host and facilitator as we explore ideas, workarounds, accommodations, and other aspects of being a professional adult with ADHD. Most of this will come from my perspective as a cis white male in his mid-50s, living in the Midwest, who found out a year ago that I've been living with ADHD my entire life. I am not an expert on ADHD, except maybe in not knowing I've had it for half a century and somehow still getting by. But I promise to cite my sources, or at least admit when I'm repeating something I read on the interwebs. If I say anything you don't agree with, you are welcome to call me on it and let me know. This podcast is also part of the lead-up into the first ADHD open space happening in Madison, Wisconsin, on January 20th, 2024. You can learn more about that event both here in the show and at the website ADHDopen.space. The first 30 episodes of this podcast are also being released as part of National Podcast Post Month, not Pod Pomo. That means things might get a little rough, but it's going to be fun. Kind of like ADHD, right? Enjoy the show. So if you've listened to the previous two episodes of this podcast, uh, you may be surprised to hear me just talking to you like this. Uh, this is actually the way I used to podcast a lot, is I would just get in front of a microphone and start talking. The stuff you've heard before is stuff that I've written, and I'm going to have more of that coming up. And I will also have more um, interviews. I'm hoping to have interviews with uh, all kinds of different people. I also get to point you at different places. For example, there's an episode of the Sketch Note podcast, which is Mike Rohde does things of that. And I found out that there's a person on that who did sketch notes for a book on ADHD. And I would love to interview her because um, I do sketch notes too. I'll talk about that later on too. But I figure that if we're in for the long haul of a 30-episode marathon, it might behoove you to know something about who the heck I am. I'm Gray Miller. I already said that in the intro. Um, but I didn't want to, I felt a little bit, you know, weird about just, you know, sitting here talking about myself for a while. And then I thought, hey, you know what? One of the ways that I fit into the same pattern as everybody else who's been late diagnosed is that I look back on my life and well, usually what I say is so many things make sense. Um, and uh, yeah, in fact, even even before I got diagnosed with ADHD, my, my therapist found out that I had been journaling pretty much my entire life intermittently, sometimes more, sometimes less. And she suggested that I read my journals. And I've been doing that. And I got to tell you, I read my journals and I see so many things that I now evidently just like it screams out, yes, obviously this person has ADHD. Um, so, I will like to make this episode the, uh, I'm going to call it the Gray DHD Drinking Game. Now, uh, well, I say drinking game, I mean drinking as in hydration. I highly suggest that you get yourself a nice big glass of water, maybe even two, uh, and the idea is, as I talk about my my life, and uh, um, both from before and after I was diagnosed with ADHD, much more before, um, 
I would like to invite you to take a drink every time you hear something that you think um, indicates ADHD. And I'm not going to like stop and talk about them at all. I'm just going to just literally just kind of talk about my life. Um, and uh, yeah, I I'll, I also tell you to say, I, I really do recommend you just use water because frankly, if you use alcohol and you know anything about the you know indicators of ADHD or the tendencies of ADHD having people, you'd probably die of alcohol poisoning. Hell, you might even die of water poisoning at the end of this. But I think it's safer to recommend water. So um, I will do that. I will be uh, finishing off my two women lager from New Glarus Brewing Company here in Wisconsin, and then going on to have some lovely tea, which I usually have before the evening. So. Um, I was born a long... No, I'm not going to be boring. I'm going to start out by just saying, um, one of the first indicators that it, to me, that is something I, I've carried with me since, uh, kindergarten, because my parents found, um, one of my teachers, when we lived in New Jersey at the time, uh, commented to my parents that I talked a lot. In fact, the way that they, they phrased it was, he suffers from diarrhea of the mouth. Uh, I I just could not stop talking uh, from about you know, starting around age five. I also couldn't stop reading. I got into a lot of trouble. I had to have a book with me all the time. And I would sit uh, during classes, and in particular, sorry, Mr. Pate, my, uh, my science teacher, I'd be reading a book, usually Robert Heinlein back then, um, and he would be lecturing on something. And, of course, the teacher tried to catch you with a, well, great, what did, what is, what did the... Uh, what was the last thing I said? And I would just replace the last thing you said because I was paying attention. I just hated boredom. I really was scared of boredom. That was the most effective punishment my parents could have for me was to bore me. Um, they also tried to instill in me a very uh, deep um, feeling of, of being able to take care of details and things like that. You know, the old uh, grass metaphor where, you know, the person like, does a $5 job of doing it. I'm not even going to repeat it. Google $5 grass cutting job. It's a horrible story. Um, but they tried to do that. They gave me a lot of different chores to do, and I could never seem to remember all of them. Or if I did remember them, I would forget some detail. Like I'd remember to sweep the front stairs, but forget the back stairs. Or I'd clean the bathroom, but I'd forget to clean behind the toilet or something like that. Like I couldn't seem to get that there. And um, I also really was tending to procrastinate a lot. Uh, my my stepmom tried to help me out with that by teaching me a little poem. It goes, procrastination is my sin. It brings me endless sorrow. I really must stop doing it. In fact, I'll stop tomorrow. Uh, notice I was able to memorize that. I don't think it actually helped me procrastinate. Um, I uh, tended to like, I just didn't like doing homework. I didn't like doing the tedious thing. I understood things already most of the time, the first time I, I, I was had them explained to me in school. And so when the tests came around, I was great. I was always the first person done with the standardized tests when we'd have them, when you fill in the little circles. Um, and as a result, my teachers told, said that I had great potential um, potential is just always, always the word they use. He has such great potential. He could be anything he wanted to be if he could just learn to, you know, work hard and do the homework and do the other steps and not just do the end. Um, 
I, I was in a, uh, luckily enough to be in a gifted and talented program in elementary and middle school um, and got to do some interesting things and, and learned that I was pretty good at performing under pressure. Uh, the highlight of that was probably when I was a part of a um, eco bowl, a college bowl style uh, thing in sixth grade and uh, at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City. And um, I came from behind and answered the right questions. I was a hair away from getting disqualified, but instead I won, got a microscope, got my uh, well, for the school, I got a microscope. Uh, my my classmates literally carried me on their shoulders. They were so happy that we had won because we were the underdogs from New Jersey with a bunch of New York schools. Um, yeah, it was great. So I had all kinds of fun, you know, performance under pressure was good. And I kept on doing that. I also had a sweet tooth. Like I could not resist a good donut. Or I remember my best friend, uh, Jeff and I, in high school, we had not studied at all for a French exam. I mean, we hadn't studied a bit and we knew we were going to fail. But for some reason, we decided to buy a pound bag of M&Ms before the test. And we split it and we ate it right before the test. We went into the test. And I think one of us got an A and one of us got a B. I can't remember who was who. But yeah, we, we actually totally passed the test and blamed it on the M&Ms. Um, so yeah, I loved lots of sweets and things like that. I also, um, in high school, I, I picked up uh, juggling as well. I found that juggling was a very uh, kind of meditative thing. And it was weird when I, the way I learned how to juggle, we went to the Wisconsin State Fair. I was 14 years old, went to Wisconsin State Fair, and there we saw these jugglers. It was uh, Martin and Loon, two complete fools. No, they weren't two complete fools, but it was Martin and Loon. The two complete fools, I think, were a couple of other uh, jugglers. Anyway, um, but after others, I went up to Loon and I said, wow, I'd love to learn how to juggle. And he said, well, I can teach you to juggle in five seconds. And he, sure enough, he did. He showed me the three steps involved in juggling. And um, I, uh, I went back and I, I rolled up little socks and I stood in front of a bed. I read somewhere that if you stand in front of a bed... Um, and juggle socks. They don't roll as much and they don't fall as far when they drop. And uh, I literally for hours wouldn't do anything but try and juggle. I just, I was absolutely going to learn how to juggle. It became my obsession. I learned to juggle uh, balls. I learned to juggle clubs. I learned to juggle knives. I learned to juggle cigar boxes. I didn't really do rings much, but I did a whole bunch of juggling stuff and started performing um, and uh, it turns out, much to you may not may not know this, but in uh, high school, juggling doesn't really make you cool. I know it's a shock, but especially in the um, small agricultural at the time based town that I lived in, uh, it was not not uh, very cool. In fact, I really didn't fit in with anybody, even though I did get involved in things like sports. I did uh, found swimming to be really good. I lettered in swimming. I was lettered in cross country. But one thing about those two sports is they're really team sports. Like they're, they're sports where you are individually on your own, on a journey. And yeah, you're competing with other people. And to some extent, there's a little cooperation, but not really. Um, so I never really fit into any of the groups. You know, there were like, there were the dirt bags, there were the, the jocks, there was the, I don't know what we called the drama people. I, I was involved in the drama group, but even then I didn't really fit in. 
And that made it very lonely for the first two years. And the second two years, I sort of made a decision that I didn't really care if people liked me or not. I was just going to be myself. Um, I think Howard Jones' music had a lot to do with it. And uh, I just started wearing weird clothes, uh, kind of like new wavey kind of stuff. This is like, we're talking late 80s here. And um, yeah, I uh, ended up um, uh, being a part of almost all the groups, but only as like a guest. You know, it was like I, I learned how to get along with them all and uh, ended up finding some belonging in the arts, the music. I loved being uh, in, I, if you watch the movie Glee or the, the TV show Glee, that was basically me in high school. I was in Madrigal. I was in show choir. I was in the musicals. I was Harold Hill, the music man and model the tailor. Um, I, uh, not in the same musical, that would have been weird, but um, I also was in all of the music things. In fact, my senior year, I had all but two credits that I needed, or two classes that I needed to graduate, and I still took more than full time because I wanted to learn all the stuff. I wanted to learn psychology. I wanted to learn music theory. I had um, I took chemistry and physics because we really good physics, chemistry and physics teachers and stuff. So I just absolutely couldn't. I couldn't get enough, and that actually stood me pretty well because I ended up getting a scholarship when I got out of there. Um, Here's where we get a little bit um, awkward. If you are a part of my family who doesn't already know this, uh, you might want to close up your ears because I will also say that I also had in in high school from about age 16 a very overactive sex drive. Um, yeah, I was uh, very, very enthusiastically um, exploratory uh, with sexuality and... Um, as a result, even though I did go off to college, I ended up leaving that college after a semester because it turned out that my girlfriend back home was pregnant. Um, and in order to try and uh, find a way to support a family and still have a chance at college later on, I ended up joining the United States Marine Corps, which is a, is a fun little story in itself. I won't say the whole thing. You can actually find the story on, um, well, let's say it'll come on my Creative Grey Substack eventually. Um, but uh, the the basic thing is, is that I had, like I said, I scored really high on tests all the time. I also scored high on the ASVAB, the military uh, thing, military tests to see what you could go and be. And so my recruiter was really excited. He wanted me to be some kind of high, you know, tech or he said, you could be anything you want. Yeah, there's that, that phrase again. You could be a, a combat journalist. You could be a you know, writer and things like that. It sounded like he thought I'd be really good in that because I scored really high in writing. Now, here's what I thought. First of all, I was a skinny kid. I was a skinny music nerd. So when when my uh, family, friends, and other people heard that I was going to join the Marines, um, the kindest thing to say was that, that they were um, skeptically supportive, as in, okay, well, we'll be here when you're, when you're done trying. That kind of thing. Like they, they just didn't. And so when the guy said, you know, you could be a combat journalist, uh, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be a combat journalist. If I if I get a pencil pushing job, everybody will think, oh, he's not a real Marine. So I told him I wanted to join the infantry. And uh, I, I feel sorry for that particular recruiter because he had gotten me by, um, well, he didn't actually say Aries like 
you know, hey, I, I want you to be in the Marines. Because he knew that the Army really wanted me to be in. The Air Force didn't want me because I had a, a kid in a way soon to be my wife. But the uh, Navy really wanted me, and they were like, offered me cars and things like that. Any posting I wanted. And he looked at me and said, why should we take you? So, of course, I went, well, how dare you all show you and just, you know, reactionary thing. I uh, signed up for the Marines. And that's when he's like, oh, well, well, I definitely will have you in some high tech thing. Now, what you may not know about military recruiters is that if they get people into, at least they used to be this way, if they get people into high demand jobs, they get bonuses. They get, you know, that helps them in promotions. They get, I don't, I don't know all the reward system, but basically if you get a cook or you get an infantryman, it's like, yeah, whatever. That's where they put people that are just, you know, are, are barely smart enough not to eat all the crayons in the box. Um, but if you could get somebody who was like a, a language person or a Marine recon or something like that, you know, then you'd get the, the, the high rewards. So he had somebody in me that could get do those jobs. And I was telling him, no, I want to be an infantryman. So I was. I was a tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missile man. Uh, that was uh, the, the tow gunner is what they called them, O three fifty two. And uh, you know how in the movies all the military people have cool nicknames, you know, Killer and Maverick and Cougar and Goose. I guess Goose isn't that cool. But anyway, that's the Air Force. They can have weird names. I was a Marine and I had a cool name too. You know, my cool Marine infantry lane green killing machine name was Reader because I always had a book with me. The only time that I ever came close to hitting a superior officer was when he found me. I should add, I was entirely entitled to do this, but he found me sitting in front of my locker reading a Robert Ludlum book. And he picked up that book out of my hands and ripped it to pieces because he said that I should be doing marine things, not wasting my time reading. He had ripped up my book. And boy, I I managed to not get myself court-martialed, but boy, was I angry. Um, anyway, uh, it turns out that my knees are not made for the Marine infantry. And uh, they, after about two years in the Marines, my knees were a mess. And so they happily gave me an honorable discharge under medical circumstances and kicked me and my then wife and two kids by then um, out. And we moved back here to Wisconsin. Now, I was told by a uh, job person at the job fair, this would have been 1991, that uh, he looked at my skill set and he said, yeah, you don't have any skills that are valid outside of Croatia. I said, wow, Croatia. Had, hmm. So I ended up being a short order cook. Um, and that was full time while my wife watched the kids. And then I was also had a part time job of weekend nights where I would um, be a computer backup person at a local medical um, production place. So that ended up being a lot of, I, I didn't want to say I enjoyed being a short order cook, but there were moments when I was. You know, I'd have like 13 orders up and I would get things started and, you know, put down the sausages and the meats and the hash browns and the things and they get everything out and get them all out and make them perfectly good. And that just gave an immense feeling of satisfaction. Um, 
but it also, you know, I, I had this history of wanting to do more things. So I also uh, followed my father's footsteps. He had been a volunteer EMT in New Jersey, and I became a volunteer EMT for a couple of years um, also in uh, in McFarland. And uh, those were some interesting times, too. I really enjoyed being an EMT. You get a cool uniform. You get to drive the big thing with the flashy lights and do the siren and get to play with things like the Kendrick extrication device and marital aid. And it was just really, you know, kind of fun. And I was still being a performer. Um, however, by that time, um, my my wife had uh, had twins, um, and this is all within like three years. So I'm at age 22 and I have a wife and four kids. And um, let's just say it was it was rough. It was not good. And she and I actually ended up splitting up. Um, and uh, through situations that I won't go into, I ended up with the girls, the kids, my four daughters. Um, I'm going to skip ahead and just say happy ending. They're all, you know, grown you know, we made it. We we all, you know, became active, constructive people. Um, and again, here's another aspect where I may make people a little uncomfortable. Um, after the uh, divorce and when I finally did start dancing or start dancing, start dating again, dance comes later. When I did start dating again, I ended up um, being a, uh, finding out that I was, I was polyamorous, which if you don't know what that means it basically means that i was having multiple romantic relationship with the full knowledge consent and support of all of those involved um so uh, i i found that you know i had tried doing monogamy for a very long time and i tried it even after i tried poly um, but i'd always reach a point where uh, I just felt like this relationship was wrong, and I ended up going to, you know, finding another relationship. There had to be something more. Um, in case you're wondering, that one also has a happy ending in that I am still actively poly, and I am involved with wonderful people, and uh, we are all quite enjoying it and happy. So, um, but to go on back. Uh, so I was a single dad with four infant girls for a while with very few job skills, and it was pretty difficult. Um, we, uh, we, we struggled for quite a while and, um, well, quite a while. It was a few years. Um, but then my, my ex-wife, um, remarried a wonderful, wonderful man who also was a very gainfully employed and a really good father. And they were able to provide a much more secure and happy home than I was able to. I was living in a bad neighborhood. There had been a gun at, uh, my oldest daughter's school, um, and so it was just kind of kind of rough there. So for a couple of years, um, they went to live with, uh, with my ex during the week, and then I would see them on the, the weekends. Um, and then they split up, and I ended up getting the girls back again. But this time they were all in school, so I was actually realizing that I had some GI Bill left that I could I could go back to school too. And I looked at the different things I could do in school, and I thought, how about music? If I become a music teacher, I'll get to be creative, and it's a sensible job. I, I should say, when I first graduated high school, I remember Glee Kid, I wanted to be a, uh, a Broadway star. I wanted to go to Broadway, be a, um, they called them gypsies then. I'm not using that in the, the slur word. I'm saying it in the terms of what's what they called dancers at the time. I wanted to go there and do that. Obviously not going to happen. But now I was like, oh, hey, I could I could do that. 
Um, I could do something creative. I could be a music teacher because I did play guitar. And uh, in fact, I, I, part of the way I supported my kids <laughs> and supported me and my kids was by playing guitar at preschools um, and doing preschool music for many years. Uh, and yeah, it's a weird, weird thing. Um, but I did finally go back to college and I thought, hey, I can do this. And the problem was I, I wasn't good enough a musician to really make it right into the music education program. So I decided instead I would go and just take some basic classes and get better at music. And while I was doing that, I took a, an elective of a drama class. And I found I really loved that drama class. And in fact, I got to, I was playing uh, music in a, a medieval Renaissance band, um, at the time, and we got asked to do a a play at the university uh, to play backup music for it. And we went back there, and the minute I went backstage, I smelled that that theater, and I'm like, I I can't be an actor because they don't make enough money. I can't possibly support my kids. But God, I miss this drama stuff. This is so cool. And then I found out, turns out, people actually make a living in the theater that aren't actors. They're called technicians or costumers or things like that. Like there is a, you, you can actually have a legitimate career. Uh, and I really appreciate the people that showed me that. And I, uh, unfortunately, um, got involved in a university musical. And I found out that there was another program called Interarts Technology within the dance department. Now, this program, it was a, a pilot program. It was within the dance department, but really it was uh, art, music, dance, and um, let's see, art, music, dance, and theater, and the technology behind them. So I got to uh, learn how to use this new technology that could make these things called CD-ROMs. Um, and I started to get in touch with this thing called the internet. Actually, I had to make this decision at one point. I had to say, am I going to go and learn how to make things on the internet, or am I going to learn how to put dance things on CD-ROMs? And at the time, that was a decision that you had to make. And and if you made the wrong decision, well, you were going to have some problems. So uh, I picked the web, thankfully, <laughs> and I... Um, Got got my degree as a, and I I did some work uh, with a few dance companies. I got to go to New York and I got to go to Boston and Arizona, and um, yeah, I was uh, involved in in dance. I, I was kind of like a stage manager, but for dance groups and dance performances, with a very heavy emphasis on tech, especially projection. I would project images on things. I really loved all the you know little cables and all the you know putting things together. And then at the time, because as I imagine you you can realize, you know, tech director, you need to be organized. And that began uh, my exploration of things like uh, productivity systems. And um, that kind of, I mean, that that's something that kind of went on and on, but I think it really started there. Uh, there was a whole new thing called sketch noting. There was getting things done by David Allen. And, and I loved it. I loved reading about these things, but I could never seem to quite make them really work permanently for me. Um, like I would do it for a while and then I just, I'd fall off and I, I couldn't keep up the things as some things would stop working for me. And it, it became to the point where I would read endlessly um, about these different systems, kind of in the way that people surf porn. Like you look at something 
that you long for and that looks really good and that you'll almost certainly never have. And uh, that actually, I still do that. I still, you know, love watching, you know, the, the, the perfect desk setup. Now they have YouTube and things like that that has that stuff on it. Um, it's why I ended up being the person who really got into Marie Kondo's uh, uh, life, was it, life-changing magic of tidying up. Um, I am, in fact, a Marie Kondo certified good boyfriend. That's another story. Um, minimalism, things like that. Love those things. Could never make them stick. If you could see my desk right now, there's all kinds of stuff, including a almost done beer. I'll take a drink, I think. And, um, yeah, so we, uh, we, I, I got that, that degree. And at the end of my degree, me and the other guys who got most, no, not all the guys, some guys, some, some of us went on to make our own dance companies. I did a lot of dance, but I wasn't good enough to be in my own company. Um, and while I did enjoy working on the tech side of things, I wasn't, the, the places where I was working didn't have enough to really pay my, my bills, uh, not with four kids now starting to, you know, enter middle school. Um, so I, I looked at it and at the time Sony gaming had a big thing here and there were a lot of, a lot of new, this is the tech boom. This is, uh, yeah, this is, this is when things are really starting to take off and most of my friends got jobs with computer companies. In fact, I ran into one of them pretty recently, a guy named Brad and yeah, he's still working at the same company, uh, doing doing you know computer admin stuff and and really doing fine. He's great, great uh, 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 family, and uh, it was it was really fun to see him. Um, but I, at the time, looked at it and I said, I don't really want to work for somebody else. I'm going to be a freelancer. I think this is when uh, Fast Company had first started coming out, and I think that Freelance Nation, was that what it was called? I don't know. It it was the start of the kind of the Tim Ferriss era of you can do everything and, and be your own boss and have that happen. So I was. I was a web designer for many time, quite a while, and um, weirdly enough, I also still kept on doing tech support for various conferences, uh, and one of them was a uh, sex and a relationship conference in Minneapolis. It was the bisexuality conference. I was not bisexual, but my partner was, and they needed a AV volunteer. So I uh, went and did that, and we both watched a particular presentation uh, where I'd had to set up the projector and everything for them, and we watched it, and by the end of it, we would, you know, we could have done that presentation better than that. And that's how I went from being a... Uh, tech director to starting my career, which is probably the longest running career that I had, of being a uh, presenter and educator on adult sex education. And I traveled all over North America doing that stuff. And I went to more and more events. And as I went to more and more events, I started going, you know, these events are okay, but I feel like I could do something better than that. And, um, I, I also had a, a conversation with another great sex educator named Lee Harrington, and he told me, Gray, you really need to have an event with your name on it. And I was like, well, that sounds so early, kind of scary. But, but he had a point. It, it echoed something that my mentor, Doug Rosenberg, in college had told me, which is that if I kept on working for other people, I was going to end up old and not having anything of my own to work with. 
So I started doing my own events and I used this thing called open space. Aha, you knew I'd get there eventually. I started doing open space events under the subject of uh, adult you know, sex education and relationships. Um, and, and I also, uh, I, I basically did that from, the first one was in 2007. And I did that until uh, 2019 was about the last time that I did that. Um, and we had, I had a large conference running at the time and lots of different open spaces things. I went to Europe twice with this. Uh, it was it was quite fun. I started doing a lot of writing about the subject. Um, was published in a few anthologies and, and, and books. You can you can still find me in, in some of the uh, books on sex education and adult relationships here and there. Uh, there's also a very prominent polyamory podcast. Um, and I believe that the person who did it uh, had a particular section that was something like eight things I wish I'd known about polyamory before I went and messed it all up. And I'm pretty sure I was six of those. Um, which may be an egotistical thing to say, but uh, let's just say that, you know, I, I had a, a little time of mini celebrity within that community. Um, but in 2017, before I stopped doing that, I also started doing this thing called sketch learning. I sort of feel like I was starting to burn out. Um, you know, my kids finally were, had, had been, you know, graduated and, and out of the house and things like that. And I sort of like, oh, hey, I, I have to figure out what I'm going to, be when I grew up. And uh, I had started um, sketchnoting. And uh, the guy named Mike Rohde, who is in, actually, he's another Wisconsinite, great podcast on sketchnoting. I think I mentioned that earlier. And I found out there's another thing called graphic recording and calligraphy and handwriting. And I'm like, hey, you know what? This is all really fascinating. And I, I just discovered it when I was making these things and, and doing these kinds of practices. My mind just felt more and he's like, it really drew me uh, more than the exhaustion of trying to organize events and things like that. So in 2019, I gave up presenting and running events. I literally handed the uh, the event I was running over to my assistant director um, with a musical number, no, doubt, no less. And uh, she asked, by the way, has taken that since then and turned it into something even so much better than what I could have ever done. I'm so happy for her and what she's done. Um and I kept on going and starting to look for graphic recording. My partner, um, Natasha, at the time was was at, employed in a job that basically could support us both quite well. And as I had supported us both for previous times, she said, why don't you take this time and go and, you know, really learn this skill that you're interested in, graphic recording. And so I got to do that. I got to travel around and learn a brand new skill at the ripe old age of how old was I then? Let's see, that would have been uh, almost 50. Yeah. So I was learning a brand new career, age 50. And I got this one really good client uh, who wanted me to come in and do a, um, a visual analysis of the dynamics of the small team that their company ran. Um, and the, the, the theory was, you know, I have had I had experience running small teams at events and things like that and lots of different kinds. Um, and I also had the visual skills to facilitate uh, and do some analysis. And so I did that. And they liked the analysis so much that they said, hey, you know what? We need an interim executive director. Uh, do you want to do that and put into effect this plan that you've you've put out here and fix these things you've noticed? And I was at a crossroads. 
2019, I could continue my job being a graphic recorder, you know, traveling around to different conventions and going to businesses and doing, you know, in-person facilitation and things like that. Or I could be an executive director of this really cool little nonprofit in central Wisconsin um, that worked with a whole lot of authors and sort of geeky things. And uh, I chose to do the executive director thing. And that's how I became the executive director of a nonprofit called World Builders. And I got to do all kinds of different things. Like, oh my God, the if the executive director was going to be personified in an animal form, it would be an octopus because an executive director of a nonprofit has to do a little bit of everything. And I loved it. I also loved that I was working with some amazing people um, the team was absolutely fantastic. I got to do lots of different things. And you did notice when I took that job, right? I started that job in January of 2020, or no, 2019. Um, so what does that mean? That means that I had the start of the pandemic. Yay! So I got to shepherd that nonprofit and people through a pandemic, a, a thing that relied on volunteers and big events. And it now we were all shut down. And I guess, was it 2020? What year is it now? Okay, 2020. Yeah, January of 2020 was when I started that because I started my job here in January of 2022. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Also, I realize this is now a really long podcast. If you are still listening, I hope you are very well hydrated. And I also tell you, we are getting near the end. So um, do I, I was executive director for a little while, and I enjoyed the fact that it was high pressure during fundraisers and things like that. I got to do a lot of things online. You can still see some of the interviews I got to do with people and some of the, uh, we had World Builders Weekly uh, video shows. Um, and at the time, I got to enjoy more kinds of uh, organization software, things like Notion. And, uh, you know, um, writer Carol came out with his bullet journal method um, and Obsidian. And uh, I, I just were really enjoying those things. And I still, to this day, I just recently had to tear myself away from this new thing called Coda, C-O-D-A dot I-O, which is, again, yet another version of the kind of thing that Notion is. And um, I, I, I think it's probably wonderful. And you could probably tell me how wonderful it is, but I just need to not be looking at new devices like that. I have other things I need to do. Anyway, by about 2022, um, they, the World Builders Board decided to take a different direction and my services were no longer needed. Wasn't fired. Wasn't an unamicable uh, thing. I also realized that I had grandkids back in uh, Madison that I wanted to spend time with. So Natasha and I moved back to Madison and I became a uh, director of development for the Rape Crisis Center here, which is where I still am at. Um, it wasn't quite as, uh, as varied as executive director. I don't have anybody that works for me, which is actually kind of relaxing. Um, but I, I have, I found that it was challenging and I got to do a lot of different things. I get to make my own hours, um, sort of, I mean, I have to make them around different events and meetings and stuff like that. But, um, uh, I also get to be on the board of various things like the social media breakfast Madison group and the, um, 
Let's see, Board of and also the uh, Community Shares Wisconsin, and I get to be an ambassador for the Middleton Chamber of Commerce. Um, I also got into uh, game design. I discovered that I really enjoyed Madison has this great thing called the Game Crafter, who makes game pieces and card. Like, if you want to publish a card game, go to the Game Crafter, and you can do it. They have a fantastic process. And I started making uh, games and discovered how fun that is. And that's about the time in 2022 was the official diagnosis. I started suspecting that I might have ADHD, um, mainly because I uh, I started realizing that I was having the same problems with things. And um, so I, <laughs> the other reason I thought I might have ADHD, my therapist basically looked at me and said, you know, looking back at all of the different communities you've been a part of, those communities have a, a very high percentage of people with ADHD in them. And I said, yeah, so what? And she looked at me and went, mm-hmm. And I, took me a while, and then I went, shut up. Because I couldn't have ADHD. I, I had look at all the stuff I'd organized, look at all the things I had done. And I, I realized that I didn't really necessarily understand ADHD. So I started reading up on it and listening to people talk about it, kind of like i just been doing, and uh, realizing that we had a lot in common. And, uh, yeah, so... I have been working through all of this stuff with ADHD and um, we'll go into more later on about like what that might mean. But while I am here, I realize that I, I have a lot of different skills and I have a lot of different potential things that I can work on. But what I do not have is the skill of learning how to focus on things. And there's lots of tools for that. Um, somebody has recently recommended Jessica Abel's um, podcast, which has a, what is it called? Decision Matrix? Uh, weighted Decision Matrix, that's what it was called, which is, is a wonderful tool. Um, I can't say that it's solved all my problems, but it definitely is something. And I'm, I'm working through that. I'm trying to do that. But I I find that the biggest thing that I've found and, and the community... The same thing that, that happened with the sex education, because, you know, U.S., honestly, perhaps the only thing worse than the U.S. sex education is the U.S. awareness of ADHD, um, because they're both pretty bad. I mean, the reason why I taught adult sex education is because people didn't know stuff. People don't figure stuff out. And a lot of us in the ADHD community are still trying to figure it out ourselves, too. And it's this idea of people helping each other out. So the reason why I wanted to do the ADHD open space is because I did lots of open spaces before and in every single one, people come in, there's always someone who says, I, I want to talk about this thing, but I don't think anybody else is going to want to talk about it. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't think anybody's going to want to do this. And I, I always tell them, look, just, just put the little session up on the board and at the time that comes, go to the space and, and let's just see what happens. If nobody shows up, then you can just say, okay, it's just mine. You can sit there and take your own notes on the thing. You can go and do something else. There's no pressure. That's the nice thing about open space. It's, you know, when it happens, it happens. Whenever it starts at the right time and when it's over, it's over. And there's no need to fill any space if you don't want to. But it's people helping each other out. Now, what always happened when people would say that was there would be other people there that would say, Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. 
And I see this happening over and over again in the ADHD community. And it's the only reason why I'm even bothering to do this podcast, because there are so many ADHD podcasts and articles and groups, and there are people who do it much better than I do. Um, but in every single one that I've seen, there's always been something where I look at someone and I go, oh, I thought I was the only one. And there's something very comforting in knowing that you're not. Um, so on this podcast, we'll be talking about ADHD. Um, even though I never mentioned ADHD until I talked about my diagnosis, I'm sure you've had plenty of water by now. Um, and we'll talk more about open space stuff as well, probably starting tomorrow. And I will also definitely answer questions as they come up. Um, but part of the reason why I wanted to do this tonight uh, and, and do this in the third episode is because even with only two episodes up, um, I got an email from a particular person who got their diagnosis even later than I did. And I, I was stunned to hear that. And they told me a little bit more about their story, which I don't have permission to share. I'm not going to share it right now. Um, but I realized that one of the things that they did express that I will share is that they were kind of nervous about sharing their story, which made it all that much more touching. And I, I'm honored that they, they shared it with me. Um, and I wanted to share this with you, not to humble brag or do anything like that, but just because somewhere in that long 45 minutes of weird life tales, um, every bit of which I swear is true. Um, I, I left out a bunch of stuff, but I did not make up anything. Um, perhaps someone will find something that will make them feel a little better in their skin and in their brain. So I hope you've enjoyed the Grady HD drinking game. And uh, I hope that you will tune in next time when we will talk about what the peep is open space anyway. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ADHD Open Space Podcast. Again, my name is Gray Miller. If you have any comments or questions about the show, you can feel free to leave them on the podcast page at adhdos.substack.com forward slash podcast. Or you can email me directly, gray, G-R-A-Y, at adhdopen.space. The background music for the intro and outro are from pixabay.com and are called Funny Days Together by Background Music Lab, used under a YouTube content ID license. 